All right, well, you note uh, the outline here. Uh, The theme is Christ the King, and we have worked our way through the various lines of evidence showing that Jesus is Messiah King. And we are in that section, chapters 14 through 16, the revelations of the King. As noted, Matthew's theme is Christ the King, but he is no ordinary king. Messiah is Hebrew, the Hebrew equivalent for the Greek word Christ, translated Christ. Literally means anointed one. Uh, They anointed special people in the Old Testament, such as priests, such as kings, and so forth. The Messiah figure promised to Israel in the Old Testament would not only be a deliverer, but also a supreme ruler, a king par excellence. This promised Messiah, while being fully man, would also be fully God. God and man in one person. The Messiah is the God-man. And that truth right there is what Israel largely missed and did not accept. The great truth presented in the greater part of Christ's ministry, in terms of the bulk of his ministry was principally that of him being Messiah God. That's the issue. The truth of Christ being Savior is predicated on him being Lord God. And I hammer this all the time. It's one of my things that I'm about. (laughs) I really think the evangelical church has been very weak in their evangelistic presentation Weak on the person of Christ, which is all important. The gospel involves believing on his name, believing in him for who he is, as well as what he has done. Both are all important. This is what Israel missed. Before going to the cross of Savior... The foremost great emphasis presented to Israel was that Jesus was their Messiah God. And this was what they found so offensive. That's why they put him on the cross, which ironically becomes the means of our salvation. Matthew interweaves this theme of Jesus being Messiah God throughout his letter. Now the Old Testament, it was there, it was there. the Old Testament scriptures which the Jews were so fanatical about over and over, show that the prophesied coming Messiah would be both king and Lord, who is to be worshipped. For example, note this text here in Zechariah. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one, his name the only one, Zechariah 14.9. The word Lord here is Yahweh. Yahweh's king. This is messianic. When the wise men showed up in Matthew chapter 2 to see the newborn king of Israel, what did they come to do? Well, according to Matthew chapter 2 verse 2, they came to worship. They came to worship him. Every Jew, every Jew knew that God alone is to be worshipped. Yet this newborn king of the Jews was to be worshipped because indeed he was Messiah God. 
So in Matthew 14, when Jesus walked on water and then stilled the storm, appropriately, it says the disciples then, quote, came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. While the disciples more and more came to see the truth of Christ's divinity, the religious leaders more and more came to oppose the truth of who Christ was. Matthew presents this pattern of growing opposition, withdrawal, and yet more miracles. Thus, growing opposition to Christ was in the face of ever more mounting evidence that Jesus was indeed Messiah God, which made their rejection all the more inexcusable. Well, Matthew 14 closes with Jesus up in the area of Gennesaret, up north in Galilee, where he healed all the sick who were brought to him. And that transitions us. By the way, who in the world ever heals everybody on any occasion anywhere? Uh, Check it out. Uh, You know, there are people who claim to do healing, you know, Kind of ambiguous stuff, like backaches maybe. But anyway, uh, Jesus healed everybody. Everybody who touched the hem of his garment here, in this case at the end of Matthew 14, everybody was healed. No exception. Uh, You do that, you'll get a following. I promise you. Jesus had a large following. Well, that was happening up at Gennesaret. And that transitions us to Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, the word then is a transitional note, And we have pointed out, Matthew does not always write with a strict chronological sequence in view, but often with a thematic flow in mind. And that may be the case here, as he is writing to show the growing conflict that is developing between Christ and the religious leaders in Israel. And it's interesting, of all the people who gave Jesus problem, uh, were a problem, uh, the religious leaders were the worst. They were the absolute worst. Uh, Note that in general, as I say, Christ was way up north in Galilee, and these scribes and Pharisees came all the way from Jerusalem to see Jesus. So note on a map what we're talking about. Uh, Gennesaret is way up here, about five miles from Capernaum, which was Christ's headquarters during his Galilean ministry. They're way down here in Jerusalem, uh, the capital, the religious center. They make their way. Now, they would not have gone through Samaria because you know who lives there, right? defiled Samaritans. You don't want to even touch their territory. So they would cross over here, uh, come over into this area and make their way up and then cross back over into Galilee. So they made their way, undoubtedly this route, made their way up to, all the way up to Gennesaret. Uh, quite a trip from Jerusalem. So I say Jerusalem was the religious headquarters for the Jews, where the religious leaders resided in close proximity to the, the Holy Temple. Now the people of Judah... Jerusalem, those in that area, the Jews in that area, generally looked down on those up north in Galilee as not being as educated or as spiritual. But interestingly, this is where the majority of Christ's earthly ministry took place, way up north there in Galilee, not right there in Jerusalem. So here this delegation of scribes and Pharisees come all the way from Jerusalem, And it seems right from the get-go, they were not coming on friendly terms. You see, they were here as critics who had come with the express purpose of challenging and discrediting Christ's ministry. 
The scribes and the Pharisees are often linked together in the Gospels. Well, who were they? Well, the scribes were the recognized, we might call them ordained theologians. They were the rabbis, the the teachers, who were specialized teachers of the law. And they were looked on as experts in the Jewish faith. They were the seminary professors, if you will, by way of application. They were the intellectual defenders of the Jewish faith. And society had the utmost regard for the scribes. I mean, they were the experts, theological experts. The Pharisees, uh, the word Pharisee means separated one. They were separated ones. They were the strictest and most conservative sect of the Jews. They were devoted to keeping the law of Moses at all costs. And so I like to say what the scribes knew intellectually, supposedly, the Pharisees tried to live out. So the scribes were the trained theological experts, and the Pharisees were the legalists who took it seriously, right down to the very letter. They come to Jesus saying, verse 2, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So here they come, challenging. Challenging Jesus like a bunch of religionists, full of ego, thinking they know what they're talking about. After all, you do realize they were the elite experts from the prestigious capital of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem religious leaders had theological problems with Jesus. I mean, they were the theological experts. You understand that Jesus, very early in his ministry, had the audacity to intrude upon their turf of the temple by driving out the money changers right at the start of his ministry. And that got things off to a really bad start. He ignored their Sabbath rules, claiming he himself was Lord of the Sabbath. Who makes a claim like that? He claimed to be the Son of God, making himself equal with God, which they considered to be blasphemy. He claimed to do what only God can do, that is, to forgive sins. Therefore, the religious leaders had written Jesus off and claimed that the obvious miracles that he was doing were really done by the power of Satan. They couldn't deny it. Yes, he was a miracle worker, but he's doing it, they said, by the power of Satan. So there was already a lot of background tension. You realize we're getting towards the the end of the last year of Christ's ministry. There's a lot of background tension here between Jesus and these religious leaders from Jerusalem. And the tensions were mounting. In this context, the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus why his disciples transgress, transgress the tradition of the elders in not washing their hands before they eat bread. Now, this had nothing to do with hygiene and everything to do with ceremonial uncleanness as prescribed by the tradition of the, Pharise- uh, of the elders, which is to say the ongoing traditions of the esteemed rabbis of history. Now, in Jewish thinking, I want you to track with me here for a minute. In Jewish thinking, the tradition of the elders went back to Moses and was under the heading of what was called the oral law. You see, Moses, this is Jewish thinking now, Moses supposedly not only received the written law, what we commonly call the law of Moses, 
but supposedly also received the oral law, which was given to him orally and then passed along orally. It was all oral. Ezra, about 450 B.C., you should be in Sunday school, great class this morning. Ezra, about 450 B.C., is considered to be the first scribe. And after the Babylonian captivity, he collected and organized the Old Testament books. And after the time of the Babylonian captivity, rabbis and scholars began to expound on the law and collect various traditions of thought, which took place until what is called the Great Council of the Elders was completed in 291 B.C. So there's a lot of collecting of of, uh, not only uh, codifying the, the books of the Old Testament, which the canon of the Old Testament was settled by the time of Christ. All the Jews agree, here's what the, uh, the written, inspired books were given through Moses and the prophets. They had that all down. But they also had this whole other body of stuff that had been written, commentary and traditions and so forth. Now, many of these scribes and scholars met well in developing commentary and traditions. They saw their work of extra teachings as providing a safe defense around the law. I mean, if the law is good, we really want to protect ourselves so we don't break it. So let's put other laws around it as a fence to protect us from breaking the law. In addition to the oral law was a whole body of oral discourse that went with it, which is called the halakha. During the time of Christ, the oral law and all the commentary on it was not yet codified in written form. That took place from A.D. 35 to 200 and eventually became known as the Mishnah. And by the way, there's a whole section in the Mishnah called Yadam that is given over to the subject of washing hands. So just a little bit of, just to appreciate what we're dealing with here, uh, note this. Uh, The Talmud is the uh, repository, that's the word, repository of Jewish tradition. Uh, And you had, you know, this huge collection of all kinds of things. The written law and supposed oral law given to Moses and handed down. The Halkah. Uh, oral discourse and ordinances which further qualify how to walk in regard to the law. Ezra the first scribe begins compilation of scriptures which puts in motion lots of commentary. Time of Christ, law of Moses, the oral law, and a huge body of uncodified commentary were all in play. And then again, from 35 to 200, the discourse on the oral law codified, written down in what is called the Mishnah, and then the, the Gemara, uh, written commentary on the Mishnah. So you've got this ever-developing more and more bigger body of stuff to grapple with and to think through and and to regulate their lives. So the Jews of Christ's time in practical reality not only considered the law of Moses and the Old Testament scriptures as binding, but also the oral law and a host of governing regulations that had also developed. In the days of Christ, there were two leading uh, rabbis on the scene. One was named Rabbi Shammai. Uh, who was more conservative. And the other leading rabbi of the day was named Rabbi Rabbi Hillel, who was more liberal. However, these rival teachers had agreed upon a fixed ordinance about the necessity of ceremonial washing of hands. So they disagreed on almost everything else, but they did agree 
on the necessity of the ceremonial washing of hands. Now, according to the law of Moses, people could be defiled by touching a dead body, uh, eating something unclean, etc. And then they were considered ritually unclean and unfit to approach God in worship until a ceremonial cleansing had taken place. The priests in the Old Testament were required to wash before eating a holy offering, but there was nothing in the law proper about people generally having to wash their hands ceremonially before eating. This was all according to tradition, which had come to be seen as mandatory on the same level as the written law of Moses itself. So important was this washing of hands that one rabbi wrote, whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. You want to, I mean, here's, here's the, the pillar of the faith for this guy. Make sure you're clean, you, you eat your food with clean hands. You'll have eternal life. There were all kinds of man-made regulations for the proper washing before eating. The minimum amount of water to be used had to be enough to fill one and a half eggshells. The water was to be simultaneously poured out on both hands with the fingers pointed upward to allow the water to drop off at the wrist because the water itself was now also unclean in the process of touching unclean hands. If it ran back down through the fingers, again, the person would still be rendered unclean. The process was then repeated, but this time the fingers were held downward allowing the water to drip on the ground. Finally, each hand was cleansed by rubbing each fist with the other hand. A strict Jew would repeat this before every course of the meal, and then again after the meal. I'm telling you, there was a whole lot of washing going on here. And you do realize this is where we get that cleansliness is next to godliness, right? A little bit of sarcasm. In the minds of these religious leaders, it was an established fact that this was the right thing to do in the eyes of God. But note, they do qualify it as being according to the tradition of the elders. So they do make a a little distinction there. It's not exactly the law of Moses. It is the tradition of the elders. But they've come to accept that also as authoritative. Verse 3, he answered and said to them, Why do you? also transgressed the commandment of God because of your tradition. Jesus responded to their question by a challenging question of his own. And Jesus brought the perspective back to where it needs to be, namely on the commandment of God. They were legalistically stuck on the traditions of men when the real issue before God is his commandments. This was undoubtedly shocking and offensive because these religious leaders never considered the fact that their honored traditions might not be authoritative and might actually be contrary to the commandment of God. This was a new concept, I'm quite confident, a new concept for them. No, Jesus called it your tradition, indicating this didn't really go back to Moses, wasn't really ordained by God through Moses, This was not really God's command. Now here in verses 2 and 3, we have highlighted the difference between legalism and biblical obedience. Now many times people are quick to call biblical obedience legalism, uh, when in fact being properly obedient to God is right and God-honoring. 
There are two polar opposites, opposite errors that one can fall into. One is called legalism, and the other is called antinomianism, against law. Both are biblically wrong. As I often say, you can fall off either side of the horse. Uh, just real quick here, legalism. Legalism is a strict adherence to a code of man-made do's and don'ts as a means of trying to earn the approval of God. I mean, we could enlarge upon that, but just for our purposes this morning. And then antinomianism, the, the other polar opposite. Antinomianism, literally no law, holds that grace provides a license that frees one from any and all semblance of law. However, sound doctrine shows that while believers are free from sin, they are under, they are under now the law of Christ. That's what we're under. We're under the law of Christ. So the Bible is clear that as believers, we are under the law of Christ, which is really the law of God's love. Obedience to the law of Christ is not legalism, but is a mark of true faith. As Galatians 5, 6 speaks, faith working through love. Uh, genuine saving faith, the way it works its way out in our life is love. Love is the defining mark. Now, we're not saved by loving. We're saved by grace through faith and grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But if we have saving faith, it works through love, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6. And I really believe in true conversion, we, we come to have a whole change of heart called repentance. And that reflects itself in our whole attitude towards Jesus as Lord and Savior as John says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So as believers in Christ, we are not to be governed by legalism, man-made rules, or antinomianism, a license to sin, but rather by obedience to the law of Christ, which is the law of his love, which is the fruit of a saving faith. Verse 4, Jesus continues. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. Now in quoting, Honor your father and your mother, Jesus quotes the fifth of the Ten Commandments. as found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Now he didn't just quote a supposed minor commandment, but one of the big ten. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 6, 2 called this the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. The word honor meant to place value upon, to esteem highly, to appreciate. You see, parents are to be properly valued and appreciated. And he followed that up by quoting from Exodus 21, also Leviticus 20, which says that whoever curses father or mother is to be put to death. Well, that brings some real seriousness to the conversation in a hurry, right? You bring in the death penalty. <laughs> uh, this gets serious in a hurry. To curse means to insult, to speak evil of, or to revile. It's the polar opposite of honoring someone as it shows total disrespect. Now, when it comes to the issue of proper honor for parents, there are two great sins brought out in the Scriptures. One relates to younger children still in the home, who refuse to show proper respect and honor for their parents, for their parents' authority. Kids who are not taught proper authority for their parents are a disaster. And our whole society 
is right now reaping the consequences of throwing the fifth commandment out the window. The home is the major shaping forum for a child. And if they don't learn proper respect for parental authority in that realm, they probably won't have any regard for God's authority or governmental authority either. The home is the major incubator for teaching a child the great issue of authority and, re- and respect as ordained by God. A major sign of last day's madness is that children will run wild and have no regard for parental authority. And that then carries over into the whole of life. It's a disaster. Kind of like what we see on display in our society today. Paul, in 2 Timothy 3, says, Know this, in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud blasphemers. And then I've highlighted disobedient to parents. Unthankful, unholy, etc. But the commandment to honor your parents changes in nuance as a person comes to childhood. Uh, rather, adulthood. <laughs> as a person comes to adulthood. As children come of age and parents grow old, the nuance of honoring them takes on the sense of caring for their needs. And that is the principal thing Christ is dealing with here. Proverbs has a lot to say to children. But here, uh, note this proverb, 23, 22. Listen to your father who who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. You know, you never outgrow the need to properly honor your parents. They are to be honored properly throughout the whole of life. And we are now seeing more and more adult children who claim to be Christian, but when they come of age, they no longer want to do anything with their godly parents. They really should do a real check on whether or not they are truly in the faith. To show the seriousness of this, Christ referenced the Old Testament call for the death penalty when children showed total cursing disregard for parents. He then applied this principle to grown children who showed blatant disregard for the needs of aging parents. This shows that not honoring an aging parent is a most serious sin in the eyes of God. And then Christ goes on to show exactly what he was calling them out on, as seen in verses 5 and 6, where we read, But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me, it's a gift, of, it's a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. You see the rabbis, the rabbis, you know, those elite teachers had come up with a rule that seemed to trump the fifth commandment in the Mosaic law. It sounded so spiritual and yet it was so evil. The reasoning went like this. Let's see if you can follow the reasoning here. If I vow to give all my assets to God by invoking the word korban, which means gift, then I'm obligated to keep my vow to God and I can't help my parents out with it. You know, after all, you understand, vows are holy. And after all, God is a higher priority than parents, right? Seemed like a pretty airtight, theologically sound argument. Cross-reference. Mark chapter 7, 
But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. I mean, it's off the table. It's, it's been, it's, it's dedicated to God. I, I'd really like to help you. I know you're hungry, but I can't help you. Uh, you know, uh, for me, it's all about God. I'm committed to God and, and I've given it all to God. I, I, I'm, I'm very spiritual. You understand? I'd like to help you. But note this problem. Christ goes on to call them hypocrites in the next verse. This type of treatment of parents was not made out of a sincere love for God, but rather because of selfish and hypocritical motives that were in reality self-oriented. You know, this amounted to a loophole that the rabbis affirmed. And thus it was part of what was called the tradition of the elders. To show you how hypocritical it was, the person was allowed to still use it for himself if it was deemed necessary. But he just couldn't help his parents out with it. Many years ago, a comedian and movie actor by the name of W.C. Fields led an unrestrained life of alcohol and mistresses. Uh, he was not known as a religious man in any sense of the word, but as his death was approaching and he was dying, he began to read the Bible. And one day a friend asked him what he was doing studying the Bible, and Field said, I'm looking for loopholes. You know, that's really what these religious leaders were about. But that never works with God. Uh, he calls this gamesmanship for what it is, hypocrisy. He looks on the heart and he knows our motives perfectly. The moral law of God does not change. The principle of honoring parents has not changed. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 5, honor, same word, honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents for this is good and acceptable before God. And then down to verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty bad. Even unbelievers generally do this. God intends for children to be the social security program for their parents. Now, in each situation, people will have to work out their salvation with fear and trembling in terms of the application of this principle. Uh, people have to honestly weigh what they can do monetarily, physically, and so forth. And no one can do everything. And in balance, sometimes people have false guilt, beating themselves up for what, in all honesty, they can't do. But the issue in context here is properly honoring aging parents in keeping with what one can legitimately do. Like I say, any professing Christian who refuses to properly honor their parents should really examine themselves and make sure they're even in the faith. Such action is tantamount to denying the faith. And if one is denying the faith, they probably don't have it. At least should very seriously examine themselves. Jesus said such traditions that seemingly get around obligations of the word of God end up making the commandment of God of no effect. These traditions not only supplement the word, supposedly, they actually supplant it or undermine it. Such traditions actually usurp and cancel out the truth of the word of God. So note that Jesus brings the issue back to the canon of Scripture. 
the actual commandment of God, the actual word of God. And this is always a true authority for the people of God. The oldest trick in the devil's book is to get people to question God and manipulate his word. In Genesis 3, 1, the devil said to Eve, has God indeed said? This is the oldest line of the devil and one of the most effective. We must go strictly by the word and the word of God alone. Those looking for loopholes only end up hanging themselves with it. This is a matter of you say, verse 5, man's traditions, versus the plain and straightforward commandment of God. This line, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, has a lot of application in the world of Christendom today. Let me, broad, broadly speaking here, Christendom. Roman Catholic theology adds the Apocrypha to the Word. It adds papal infallibility to the Scripture. It adds the rulings of the Magisterium, saying, quote, Sacred tradition and sacred Scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the Word of God. All such traditions, in reality, undermine and supplant the Word of God. You maybe heard about it this week, uh, this uh, Catholic priest in Phoenix, Arizona, resigned the church after it was determined that he had used one wrong word in his baptismal formula in baptizing people for the last 20 years, making their baptisms invalid. Well, that's a really big deal to them because as the diocese pointed out, quote, baptism is a requirement for salvation. Well, if you really believe that, then all those people who died with an invalid baptism are lost. And of course, their whole doctrine of salvation is wrong and is, in truth, another gospel. But the point is, so much of Roman Catholic teaching, their system, is based on mere tradition by their own admission and not solely on the Word of God, rendering the Word of no effect. Their tradition flat out contradicts the Word. So what are you going to go with? Tradition or the Word? When there's a contradiction, you can't have it both ways. In effect, all the cults hold true traditions and sources of extra-biblical authority that contradict and nullify the straightforward teaching of the Word. No matter what the tradition, no matter the segment of Christendom, to follow tradition that flies in the face of Scripture is deadly. And there are many deadly such traditions. You know, we have a lot of things coming into the church today. People would say, there's no difference between the role of men and the role of women. Uh, you know, we're all equal. And we are all equal in terms of value. But God has ordained a distinction of roles. And that has then led to where many churches are entertaining. We can go along with homosexuality, transgenderism, all kinds of deadly traditions. There are traditions that say, you know, you have to have an experience. In order to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. There are those that say you have to be baptized to be saved, such as the Church of Christ. Many mainline churches teach this. The tradition of putting church polity over the Bible is deadly and on and on. In the so-called evangelical churches, there is a lot of tradition that has as its source some charismatic teacher who comes off very impressive. We have health and wealth teachers 
We have prosperity gospel teachers. You want some of that, right? We have self-esteem teachers. We have a lot of man-oriented teaching that caters to itching ears, just as the Bible said would be characteristic of the last days. It's so bad that uh, we have this from Pastor Gabriel Hughes, among evangelicals in the United States, he's getting this from Legionnaire, very credible source. 31, this is evangelicals, 31% say science disapproves, uh, disproves the Bible. What are you doing calling yourself an evangelical? 33 uh, say gender is a choice. 38, Jesus was not God. 62% say God accepts all religions. 62 say, uh, percent say the Holy Spirit is the force, not a person. 66% say people are good by nature. You know what I say to that? Good grief. Really? 75% say God first created Jesus. He is the firstborn, right? I on and on. It's unbelievable. There's a lot of tradition where professing Christians are going through the motions. And in my estimation, the most crying need we have in professing Christendom today is the need for consistent, solid Bible teaching. The consistent teaching of sound doctrine that rightly divides the word of truth. We are long on tradition and short on the authority of the word. We need the uncompromised word above all else. I could tell you all kinds of stories at this point in terms of legalism and how he even comes into our churches. Years ago, I was just a young whippersnapper. I'm an old whippersnapper now, but I was young one day, once upon a time. And in those early days, we had a retired pastor come to our church. And he brought with him a lot of legalistic baggage. And he said he wanted to help the young guy. Right? And uh, honestly, we all know I need some help. Right? So when I visited him, he had a, a long, long list. It was unbelievable. He had pages of this stuff. A long list of legalistic criticisms. He saw, are you ready for this? He saw a guy in our church cross his legs one Sunday. I needed to address that. Right? Yeah. We were, of all things, having business meetings on Sunday night. And we all know that's anathema. On and on and on he went. I graciously tried to correct him, but he came to treat me as a heretic since I didn't go along with his legalistic criticisms. I became part of the problem. Well, they say the last seven words of the church are, we've never done it that way before. Entrenched traditions die hard. And when they contradict the word of God, they are deadly. Now, not all traditions are bad. We all have all kinds of traditions. They're not all bad. But when they become legalistic, religiously legalistic, they are bad. And when tradition is held to as authoritative over the Bible, that is deadly serious. Whatever we are doing, we better have a verse to back it up. And the verse better be properly understood in context. In the end, the word of our God shall stand forever. Traditions that are in conflict with the word are not only not helpful, they are destructive. They end up replacing the word. How great a sin is this to set the Bible aside and say, well, we're just going by the traditions. The traditions of the elders. 
That is to make the word of God of no effect and is most serious. The great issue in view is this. What is the authority that governs our practice? What is the authority that governs our worship? Is it the word of God or is it tradition? For true worshipers, the authority is singularly the word of God. So Jesus says to them, verse 7, hypocrites. Boy, I'll be tell you, this really brought the tension up. Hypocrites. He's saying this to the esteemed scribes and Pharisees of all people. This is like me talking to a bunch of pastors. Hypocrites. Boy, try that. Maybe don't. No, you, you, you probably should. We'll let the Lord do it. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, few things are worse than religious hypocrisy. I think God hates religious hypocrisy worse than almost anything else. I think there's a special hot place in hell for religious hypocrites. John MacArthur, Satan has no greater allies than hypocrites who go under the guise of God's people. And hypocrites have no greater ally than tradition. Because tradition can be followed mechanically, thoughtlessly, without conviction, sincerity, or purity of heart. The word hypocrite comes from the stage of Greek drama. It refers to one who wears a mask or plays a part such as an actor would do. As such, it became a metaphor for one who is a pretender. You see, religious hypocrites are actors. They are pretenders who claim to be all spiritual, but it's all an elaborate act. Hypocrites act all religious, but in reality, they are all about self. They don't really care about God, and they don't really care about other people. They care about themselves. And God sees right through the sham. Jesus defined these hypocrites by applying Isaiah 29, 13 to them. Notice what he says, quoting Isaiah 29, 13. Verse 8, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, religious hypocrites are game players. They play church. And Jesus singled out the religious leaders in particular here. Really, in in all of his calling of people hypocrites, it was almost always the spiritual leaders. They're the worst. They come off like they're so sincere. And they say a lot of good things. I mean, notice, they draw near with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. Outwardly, it sounds good. They pray flowery prayers and seem so spiritual with their mouth. Praise the Lord. It's on their lips. But it's all by rote and not by heart, so to speak. They have a heart problem. They give outward lip service, but... But in truth, their heart is far from God. And this is the whole issue before God. By the way, this is, this is the issue of life, right? Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart, keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. In the end, what God's going to evaluate on judgment day is really not only your actions, not only your deeds and what you did, but really what was behind it in your heart. The essence of our life before God is what's lived out in the heart. The heart in Scripture refers to the core of a person's inner being, to their character, to their true self in regard to commitments, the will, beliefs, convictions. The Bible speaks of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The heart is the place of one's thinking, affections, and motives. It's the core of what a person is really all about. 
The problem with these religious leaders was that their true heart allegiance was really self-oriented, not God-oriented. And that reflected in how they treated people, in this case, parents. At core, the religious legalist has a heart problem. His whole heart orientation is wrong. It never ceases to amaze me, the description of last day's apostasy. There's a whole list of gross sins, as we find in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You work your way through, it's unbelievable. But then you come down to verse 5. Yet having a form of godliness, but denying his power from such people turn away. They have an outward profession, but their practice denies the life-changing power of true conversion. If your faith doesn't change your life, it's just merely a profession. You're not saved. You're a hypocrite, just playing the part. It's merely form religion and not the real thing. And many are in that category. Did not Jesus say, many will say, Lord, Lord, and you'll say, I never knew you. Your life was a complete contradiction. You were a total hypocrite. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Such hypocrisy is nothing new. It was a reality in Isaiah's day. It's a reality in Christ's day. It's a reality in our day. And it's a major component of last day's madness. Hypocrisy defines last day's apostasy. Warren Wiersbe says God wants us to give him our hearts, not just lip service. We believe in the heart. We love from the heart. We sing from the heart. Obey from the heart. Give from the heart. It's about the heart. The difference between hypocritical religion and true saving faith is found in the heart. Luke 8.15, Jesus illustrated the, the genuine are those who, quote, upon hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The difference is made in the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord looks at the heart. Jeremiah 17, 10, the Lord searches the heart. D.A. Carson, the burden of Scripture, Jesus quotes, is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had displaced the true religion of the heart of the entire personality and will with a religion of form. Just outward pretense. Now, sometimes when a person gets serious about God, you know, the world out here will say, well, they got a little religion. Well, I want you to know that there's lots of people that have tons of religion, not one ounce of salvation. It's not about how much outward religion a person has, but rather about a life-changing relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that is a heart issue. And so Jesus, finishing the quote from Isaiah 23, uh, 29, 13 says, verse 9, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Vain worship is empty, useless worship. It goes through the motion, motions, but it's worthless. It's meaningless. Vain means to accomplish nothing or to have no result. The core problem here is that they're teaching conformed to the commandments of men instead of to the commandments of God. And again, you can't have it both ways. Mankind was created to worship. That's why we're here this morning. It's the ultimate issue. And to be a true believer is to be a true worshiper. The first act of true worship is a saving faith, without which it's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. 6. 
In an evangelistic context, and that context is very important. In John chapter 4, in evangelistic context, Jesus said to a Samaritan woman, The hour is coming, now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship. What's God really after, lady? He's after true worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, The mark of the true covenant people of God is that we worship God in the spirit. That was a problem with these religious hypocrites. They were not true worshipers. They were hypocrites just going through the motions, following the commandments of men. Worship must be on God's, God's terms, and his terms start with saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. True belief and true worship go together. And they are both predicated on the command of God to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, John kind of makes a summary statement about the whole thing here in 1 John three twenty three. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Second John 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. You see, the Word of God has as its centerpiece the truth of Jesus Christ. True worship is centered in this truth. And when we have true faith that aligns with the truth of Christ, that then demonstrates itself in how we live. Knowing God is reflected in how we treat people, starting with our family, starting with our parents in the context here. Now, it should be noted, and I want to emphasize this, and I'm going to come back to this in weeks ahead. It should be noted that the whole surrounding context here is ultimately dealing with the issue of authority and worship. And they go together. We saw last time in our study, Matthew 14, 33, as Jesus walked on the water and so forth. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is thematically is, is the issue that Matthew is, is interweaving all the way through here. Today, again, the issue of worship comes up. In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines and commandments of men. And as we get a little further into chapter 15, this Canaanite woman comes as so she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. In view in our study this morning is the contrast between the authority of God's word versus the traditions of men. The contrast between the authority of God and that of mere men. And correspondingly, the contrast between true worship and that of mere religion. Religion, dominated by tradition, is a very hard thing to break out of. This has been a major problem for the Jews since the time before Christ. Zvi, I love Zvi. He died back in, what was it, 2014. But he was a Holocaust survivor who was known for his bold witness in Jerusalem. And over and over and over again, his emphasis as he witnessed to these Jews was that they should not put their trust in their traditions and commentaries, but only in the Word of God. And here's one of the stories that he told as... as uh, found in uh, the magazine, Israel, My Glory. Here's what he says. Recently in Israel, a, a group of men from the ultra-Orthodox community were busy going from house to house, carrying their many commentaries. When they saw me coming with my little pocket Bible, one asked me, how can you come to speak about the faith with nothing? He said, you see this little book? 
I asked them, it's the Holy Bible. This is enough. It's all I need to go to the ends of the earth to bring his salvation. But you need a train to carry the stacks of books you bring. (laughs) Their teacher with great confidence that he would show me his wisdom, stumped me in only a few minutes, stood forth. After three hours of conversing, I asked them, why do you boycott the words of the Lord that are written in the Bible? We have never boycotted even one letter from the Bible, one said. Not just one, not even one letter. You boycott a whole chapter, I replied. They were surprised. Do you know what you are saying, one asked. Yes, I know, I said. The fact is you boycott Isaiah 53. Why are you so afraid of that chapter, I asked. But their teacher wanted to show his pupils how wise he was. The rabbi began to shout, We will never leave our rabbinic tradition. And you cannot convince us to believe in this man. Insert, ultra-Orthodox Jewish people refers to Jesus as this man. Zvi said, Rabbi, I have only spoken about what is written in the Bible. And you have concluded that I am speaking about Christ. Zvi says, I think he realized he had implied Isaiah 53 speaks about Jesus. Andre Sue Peterson writes, we have a new pastor. And he does things a little differently. Before preaching the word, he reads the passage and then he always, always adds... All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Legalistic traditions are man-centered, but the word of God is centered in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, shall stand forever. Do you believe in Him? Are you a true worshiper? Aligning with the truth of the Scriptures. That's what worship in spirit is and in truth, is all about. It's all about Jesus, who He is as Lord, what He has done for us as our Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.